In the early 21st century, the sterilisation of women with learning disabilities in the UK is increasingly rare. Since the 1970s, with the move from institutionalisation and the consequent rise of care in the community, the practice has been partially exposed, but to a large extent remains a hidden history. In this programme, we introduce aspects of this history through the voices of survivors, women who've been sterilised, as well as social historians and a legal professional, in the belief that an understanding of the past will inform ongoing discussion and research that relates to reproductive choice, disability, human variation and technology. I'm Liz Tilley, a lecturer in the Faculty of Health and Social Care at the Open University. I also chair the Social History of Learning Disability Research Group. Research suggests that many survivors were involuntarily sterilised as young teenagers. Ebba Herrensdottir is from Iceland. She was sterilised when she was 14 years old and at that time she lived with her parents and siblings. And when she went to the sterilisation when she was a child, she was told the appendix had to be moved. Linali Muir is from Canada. I was 14 and a half the day that I went for the surgery. The nurse took me over to the clinic and I was told when I got to the clinic that I was going to have my appendix out. And there was four of us that had the surgery the same day. In the Western world, sterilisation was deemed legal in parts of the US, Canada, Europe and certain Nordic countries into the 1970s. In Iceland, for example, sterilisation was legalised between 1938 and 1975. Formally, this required the person's consent, though, as we shall hear, this was not always taken seriously. Ebba is now 59 and recently visited the UK to attend a learning disability conference at the Open University. We talked about her experiences in the garden, together with Gudrun Steffensdottir, who works in social pedagogy in Iceland and who acts as Ebba's translator. Ebba, can you tell me how old were you when you found out that you'd been sterilised? She didn't know about it until she was 27 years old. When she knew about it, it was at the institution and the reason for she knew about it was that five women at the institution were going to the sterilisation operation and they were having some lessons about why and how and things like that. And then I asked, why am I not told about it or why am I not in this group? And then the woman who was in charge at the institution told Eppa that she had sterilisation when she was 14 years old, when she still lived at home. But how do you feel about it now? In the beginning, she was very angry about it, but she has accepted it. But she says what she was angry about was maybe not the sterilisation, but that she couldn't decide by herself because she hasn't been thinking about having a child or, or something like that. But it's more like that the decision was not hers. Ebba now lives independently with her husband in Reykjavik and is one of many women who was sterilised without their knowledge or consent. As she describes, it was primarily the sense of deception that caused her the greatest anguish. 45 years later, I asked her who she holds responsible. It's the community that decided to do these things, even though it was her mother's decision. It was because uh, how the society were at that time. So she says that the government should do something for the people who have uh, experienced this. And that is exactly what has happened in the landmark case of Lilani Muir in Alberta, Canada. 
Lilani is the first person to file a successful lawsuit against the province of Alberta for wrongful sterilisation. She recalls the moment she discovered that she'd been sterilised. I was babysitting one night and I thought, well, I'm going to go to the doctor. And he asked me about the scar. And I told him, I says, well, I was in this place and they told me they were taking my appendix out. And he says, what? Well, they told me they were taking my appendix out. The scar was that wide and about that long. Very, very sloppy, sloppy. And he says, that's not an appendix scar. And he said, they did more than just take your appendix out. He says, you can't have children. This is the first time that I had found out I was sterilized. And there was only a quarter of an inch of my left tube left. Lilani's case summary reveals a great deal about the history of sterilisation in Canada. John Falls of Field Law represented Lilani in the trial. The case arises out of the implementation of a eugenics law in Alberta, which was passed in the late 1920s. It allowed a board to order the sterilization of persons who were brought before it. And at first, when this law was passed, it was subject to the consent of the patient that was involved. And no operation could be carried out unless that patient agreed. And you have to remember that at that time in the 1920s, in Canada and probably in many other jurisdictions as well, any kind of operation to sterilize somebody, to limit their reproductive capacity, was considered to be an assault and couldn't be carried out even with that person's consent. After a few years, the government began to realize that it wasn't getting very much business and not very many operations were being carried out because people weren't very inclined to consent to that kind of a procedure. And so they removed the requirement for consent in the case of persons who were deemed to be mentally defective without their permission. The eugenics system in Canada was highly, highly routinized in similar ways to what happened in Germany, honestly. And yet it was all very benign and banal. Claudia Malacrida, talking to us via a long-distance internet line, is Associate Professor of Social History at the University of Lethbridge in Canada. The Eugenics Board met four times annually in formal ways, one in Michener Centre, one in a place called Pinoco, which was a mental health facility, and then a couple of times in, um, in hospitals across the province. And then there were these sort of itinerant guidance clinics that covered the outposts. These were sort of roving groups, roving groups of psychiatrists, health nurses, guidance counsellors, sometimes clergy and often educators who would visit small rural towns and collect a list from the local physician or the local clinician about who would be a likely subject for sterilization. You know, a family doctor might say, oh, why would you want to worry about, you know, having menstruation that's so messy and it only hurts the child and she would never be able to be a mother. So let's just take care of that. Lilani was admitted to the Provincial Training School, the Michener Centre that Claudia mentioned, when she was 10, at the request of her mother, who was an alcoholic. She can't recall being examined for her mental capacity by psychiatric doctors and only has a vague recollection of the eugenics board, who would ultimately give the all-clear for her sterilisation. I don't remember having an IQ test or anything done there or before I went in there, but uh, they classified me as a moron 
an IQ of 64, verbal IQ of 70. We went before a board before that, and they asked me, I only remember this because it stuck out like, like nothing, eh? How old is a baby when it starts walking and talking? Well, I already knew because I had a little brother. I said one. On that board, I found out later, there was only two professionals, and on all the files it had clear, clear, clear. That was cleared for the surgery. One of the uh, psychiatrists who examined her and who gave evidence at the trial said it would be difficult to overestimate the degree of harm that such a series of events would cause on a young woman, particularly a young woman who is seeking to rebuild her self-image and her self-esteem after having been wrongfully placed in an institution for most of her young life on the grounds that she was mentally defective. Not only would Lalani have been able to make her own decisions about whether to be sterilised or not, she was wrongly held in a mental institution for 10 years of her early life. But despite the compelling evidence, John Fould recalls that it was an extremely difficult case, given the huge implications for the province of Alberta. Lalani Muir was one of about 3,000 people who had been sterilised by the Alberta government, and a successful claim on her part meant the risk to the government of having to deal with a very large number of claims afterwards. That said, it was a very difficult claim for them to defend in two ways. First of all, most people, including most Albertans, regarded as simply unacceptable whether it was done in accordance with with prevailing law or not. Um, The second difficulty they had was the fact that the board, which was supposed to implement it, had not followed the safeguards or standards that it was required to follow and had used the law for ulterior purposes. Decisions to sterilise were often taken regardless of the young woman or indeed her family's interests. But data that exists for the more recent past in England and Wales indicates that mothers have been key to the referrals of their daughters for sterilisation. Furthermore, those who involved the courts were commended for consulting with a range of medical and legal professionals. Going through the courts for sterilisation is a very long and arduous process and those mothers who did that referral had positive comments written about them in the main from the experts that were around and were obviously very strong characters who were doing what they felt was the best for their daughter with learning disabilities. Alison Stansfield is a community learning disability psychiatrist who has undertaken critical research on the recent history of sterilisation of women with learning disabilities. That came across quite strongly, although it's very difficult to state that specifically, but certainly when I was talking to the official solicitor family lawyers who were around, they had the same sort of feeling that it was the, you know, the mothers that drove the process. Alison's research focuses on legal records from the 1980s and 1990s. Prior to this, we only have anecdotal evidence available, such as Pauline and Diana's story. When Diana, who's now 60 and married with a stepfamily, was a year old, she contracted measles and meningitis, which resulted in brain damage. Pauline, her mother, decided to have Diana sterilised when she was in her teens. Jan Wormsley, visiting professor in the History of Learning Disabilities at the Open University, Talk to Pauline about Diana's sterilisation. When you made this decision, what did you actually do? How did you approach it? Did you go to your doctor? My doctor, and he gave me a specialist, and he thought Diana looked normal. She was okay. 
But then when he interviewed her, he said, I'll do it, do the operation and that. Was it a difficult decision for you? Well, she always blames mother for not letting her have any babies. And I said, well, you'd had about 20 by now, Diana, wouldn't you? And then she went missing this time. And uh, this chap had her in a room and locked her up. We had to have the police and everything. They wanted us to take it to court, but how can you have a handicap go to court and stand up? She wouldn't understand the questions or anything. So he got away with what he'd done to her. I mean, if she hadn't been sterilised, how many babies would she have? So this actually happened after she'd been sterilised? Yeah. Thank goodness for that. (laughs) Diana couldn't cope with a baby, although she's granny to this chap's children. I mean, even now, how she's got on in life, I don't think she could have coped with a baby. At least she could go out to clubs and I know she won't get pregnant. Pauline argues that having Diana sterilised gave her more freedom, but it only protected her from the consequences of sexual abuse, not the abuse itself. Today, the use of long-term contraception appears to be replacing surgical sterilisation, but the question of what this means for women with learning disabilities remains. Many women are not informed and are not given the opportunity to understand the contraception they're prescribed or to consider whether it's needed at all. Michelle McCarthy is a senior lecturer in learning disabilities at the Tizard Centre in the University of Kent, who recently interviewed 23 women with learning disabilities to assess their understanding about reproductive choice and control. For some of the women, there was a feeling that just the concerns about a woman getting pregnant were enough in herself somehow to get her pregnant. So the fact that she wasn't having sex with men was kind of just taken out of the equation. It's like almost like that didn't matter. You had to have contraception anyway, is what I've called the kind of just-in-case approach. In a lot of cases, it's about you know if they were to be sexually abused by somebody. It was a strange attitude, I think, sometimes, and not entirely clear what was behind people's thinking. That came across very strongly, I think, both from the women themselves and from those who surround them and support them, whether that's medical staff or their kind of carers in their, their residential services or, indeed, parents if they live with their parents. In this introduction to the sterilisation of women with learning disabilities, we have highlighted some of the history, but we leave the last word to Ebba, who is concerned that women who've been sterilised share their experiences. She thinks it's very important that women all over the world talk about it because it has been such a secret all over the world. So she thinks it's very important to share the experience, not, not only from Iceland but all over the world. The Open University. For more information about the history of learning disability, go to www.open.ac.uk slash hsc slash ldsite.